Section 19 of the Watergate Report, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Final Report of the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, Volume 1. E. Colson Suggestions Roger Stone Bart Porter recalled that Colson wanted to send someone to New Hampshire to make a contribution to the campaign of Rep. Pete McCluskey on behalf of some radical group. Porter testified that he gave Roger Stone $200 to travel to New Hampshire to make a cast contribution to the McCluskey campaign. Jeb Magruder stated that on one occasion, Charles Colson suggested that CRP send an individual wearing a gay lib button to a McGovern meeting. Roger Stone recalled that Porter suggested that he travel to New Hampshire and contribute money to McCluskey from the Gay Liberation Front. Stone said he persuaded Porter to make the contribution instead from the Young Socialist Alliance. A few days later, Porter called Stone back to his office and gave him $200 in cash for travel and a $135 contribution. Stone said he converted the $135 into small bills and coins to convey the image of a donation from many small contributors. Stone said he went to New Hampshire and delivered the contribution to a McCluskey campaign worker in a storefront. Stone received a receipt for the contribution from the campaign worker, showing the source of the contribution as the Young Socialist Alliance. After he returned to Washington, Stone said he met with Porter and they drafted an anonymous letter to the Manchester Union leader and enclosed a photocopy of the receipt. The bogus contribution was staged and subsequently attempted to be leaked to discredit the McCluskey campaign with the New Hampshire voters. Theodore Brill Jeb Magruder testified that another incident initiated by Charles Colson was the infiltration of the peace vigil conducted by a group of Quakers in front of the White House. The group of Quakers gathered daily in front of the White House to protest the administration's Vietnam policy. Magruder said Colson told him that there should be someone finding out what the peace groups in front of the White House were doing. Magruder asked Ken Reitz, head of the Young Voters for the President, to find someone to get Colson the information. Reitz, whose experience in intelligence gathering began with the placement of Ruby I, delegated the assignment to his assistant, George Gorton. Gorton contacted Roger Stone and asked Stone if he knew a local young Republican who needed a summer job. Stone suggested Ted Brill, a former chairman of George Washington University's Young Republican Organization. Gordon asked Brill to come to CRP headquarters where he told him that the job consisted of infiltrating and monitoring the Quaker vigil as a first assignment. Brill's assignment was to determine the future intentions of this group, particularly its plans for the Republican convention in Miami. Brill periodically visited the vigil, sometimes wearing a McGovern campaign button, and talked with the protesters during the next six weeks. He reported verbally to Gordon six or seven times and received about $675 for his efforts. Brill was terminated the week following the Watergate break-in. Throughout the Gordon-Brill contacts, the possibility of further assignments was discussed, including infiltrating dissident groups at the Republican convention. Brill testified that after the news of the Watergate break-in, he received no further assignments. Magruder stated that the information from Brill went back to Ken Reitz and then to Richard Howard in Colson's office. F. Chapman's Friend Chapman's Friend was a code used by two reporters who were hired by Murray Chotner, a veteran of many Nixon campaigns, to travel with opposition campaigns posing as newspaper reporters 
and to monitor the activities of these opposition candidates during the 1972 campaign. Chotiner said the operation was approved by John Mitchell, but was handled directly by Chotiner. The first Chapman's friend, Seymour K. Fryden, worked from March to November 1971 and from May until the end of August 1972, covering as many candidates as possible. Fryden was not reporting for any newspaper at the time and received his sole source of income from Chotner. Chotner said he told Fryden to observe everything he could while traveling with various campaigns and to report the information back to Chotner. Fryden identified himself as a working journalist to gain access to the Democratic campaigns. He phoned his reports to Chotner or Chotner's secretary. The reports discussed crowd reactions, interviews with staff people, and events that occurred both privately and publicly while on the campaign trail. The reports were typed in draft form by Chotner's secretary and edited by Chotner, whose final versions were sent to Haldeman and Mitchell. Once the Chotman's friend report reached Haldeman, it was again copied and sent to members of Haldeman's staff. There was no indication on the Chapman's friend report where the information came from or who was responsible for providing it. The reports were simply labeled Chapman's friend reports. Sometime in August 1973, Fryden got another assignment as a reporter and terminated his employment with Chotner. Chotner then hired Lucianne C. Goldberg. Mrs. Goldberg traveled with the campaign of Senator McGovern and also used the code name of Chapman's friend. Mrs. Goldberg was employed by Chotner from September 1972 through the election in November. Both Goldberg and Fryden were paid $1,000 per week plus expenses with checks drawn from Chotner's law office account. Chotner's secretary submitted expense vouchers to FCRP for reimbursement of Chotner's expenses. On the vouchers, the payee's salary was shown only as reimbursements for survey and related expenses were shown only as reimbursement for survey expenses. The only people who knew the true purpose of the survey expenditures, according to Chotner, were Mitchell, Magruder, and Robert Odell. Chotner told Odell the purpose of the payments, but refused to reveal the identities of the Chapman's friends because he did not want the name of the informant disclosed before the election. Odell, however, denied any knowledge of the purpose of the expenditures made by Chotner until sometime in June 1973, when he was informed of the purpose during questioning by the FBI. Odell wrote a memorandum on September 8, 1972, to Nick Bungato, a driver at CRP, which stated, Once or twice a day you will get a call from Mr. Chotner's office in the Reeves and Harrison law firm on the fifth floor of 1701, asking you to deliver envelopes directly to Mr. Haldeman's office on the first floor of the West Wing at the White House. Please give these requests top priority since the envelopes are very important and time will always be a factor. G. Young Voters for the President Demonstrations The CRP's efforts to counter or neutralize the traditionally Democratic youth vote were coordinated by the Young Voters for the President, YVP. Memorandums indicate that Ken Reitz, head of YVP, was directed by Jeb Magruder to organize demonstrations against the McGovern-Shriver campaign with the advice of Ed Feiler, special assistant at CRP. Rallies organized in the spring of 1972 were initially in support of the president's announcement on May 8, 1972, of the mining of Haiphong Harbor. Reitz organized a pro-Nixon vigil at the White House and organized pro-RN demonstrations were needed. After Senator McGovern was nominated at the Democratic Convention, Magruder directed Ed Failer to take responsibility for setting up McGovern-Shriver confrontations. 
Ken Reitz reported to Failer weekly on the success of the YVP in organizing demonstrations against the president. Failer himself reported to Magruder about his own efforts to disrupt the McGovern campaign. I have personally endeavored to create an encounter between Shriver and a busing opponent on the busing issue for today in Las Vegas. Anti-busing people will be used in this encounter, and no Republicans will be surfaced. In Reitz's report on the activities of the week of September 22, 1972, he cited daily orchestrated demonstrations by young voters for the president at McGovern and Shriver campaign stops. Reitz explained that good media coverage resulted from these efforts. Reporter Bruce Morton concluded that it was not a very good stop for McGovern. We are told an AP Wire story reported the presence of young Nixon supporters. Reitz also reported that the demonstrations upset candidate McGovern in Milwaukee. Finally, these demonstrations apparently forced cancellation of some of McGovern's planned activities. Failer wrote to Magruder, We have learned the McGovern organization and or the Secret Service has reacted to our activities. The San Gennaro Festival in Greenwich Village, New York, Saturday night, was originally planned as a walking tour of a few blocks by McGovern. However, as a result of the events in Flushing, New York on Thursday, September 21st, organized by YVP, the street walk was canceled and McGovern spoke in an area that was barricaded off. H. Use of Advanced People On July 28, 1971, Pat Buchanan wrote a memorandum to Attorney General Mitchell, which suggested the following activity for the 1972 campaign. Special Projects We would like to utilize John Walker's resources where possible to handle some close-in operations, pickets and the like, when candidates visit various cities. The candidate normally brings with him his own media, he attracts local media, and we would like to be able to piggyback on that media with our own operations and a candidate. This requires support activities from some source. Ron has an operation in place, and they will need approval, either general or specific, for these covert operations. Ron Walker headed the White House advancemen, who were used to set up the logistics for the presidential visits. Thus, Buchanan suggested that they be used for anti-candidate, covert operations against the Democratic candidates. Buchanan testified that this idea was rejected. However, Ron Walker testified about other questionable tactics sometimes used by advancemen to counteract protesting signs at presidential appearances. Walker said that groups with pro-Nixon signs on sheets would be organized by advancemen prior to the appearance. At the first sign of any protest, the group would be moved to a curbside to place their signs between the president's motorcade and the protesting observers. Walker also testified that it was the advance operations policy to ensure that undesirables did not show up at presidential rallies. One technique used to keep out undesirables was the fake ticket routine, in which the advance man would ask for the ticket of an individual and then declare it a fake and escort the individual from the rally. Walker said this technique was used in Charlotte, North Carolina on Billy Graham Day to cope with potential protesters who were planning to show up for the president's appearance. Walker also stated that there were other recommendations for coping with demonstrators. One idea that was discussed was that the advance operation should have ready a pickup truck with cowboys in it, and if there was any trouble at an appearance, they would release the cowboys and let things happen. Walter said he recalled Haldeman discussing such tactics, but that such tactics were never implemented. I. Vote Siphoning Schemes Vote siphoning is essentially a direct interference by one political party or campaign in the affairs of another party or campaign 
for the purpose of weakening or eliminating an opposition candidate. In 1972, the Committee to Re-elect the President, CRP, secretly financed efforts to take votes away from Senator Muskie in the New Hampshire and Illinois primaries, and secretly supported an effort in California to drive the registration of the American Independent Party, AIP, below the required minimum so that AIP would not qualify for a spot on the ballot in the general election. The New Hampshire Primary The effort to take votes away from Senator Muskie in New Hampshire was initiated by Charles Coulson, according to Magruder, who told him that the project had been approved by both Haldeman and the president. Magruder cleared the project, at a cost of $8,000 to $10,000, with John Mitchell and also spoke to Haldeman about it. Colson, or someone in his office, according to Magruder, drafted a letter supporting a write-in campaign for Senator Kennedy, whose name was not on the ballot. The draft was taken by someone in Colson's office to Robin Ficker, a Democratic politician in Montgomery County, Maryland, who had been running a Kennedy for President headquarters since July 1971. Ficker said that in February 1972, someone who identified himself in a telephone conversation as Mike Abramson asked him to sign a letter calling for a Kennedy write-in campaign. The letter was brought to Ficker's home by a Bill Robinson, who said he was with a law firm in Washington, D.C. Ficker signed the letter because he agreed with its contents. He was later told that between 150,000 and 180,000 copies of the letter were mailed to New Hampshire residents whose names appeared on the CRP mailing list of Democrats. Ficker also went to New Hampshire shortly before the primary and campaigned for Kennedy for four or five days. At Abramson's suggestion, he placed one advertisement in the Manchester Union Leader, credited to the United Democrats for Kennedy, which he signed and paid for himself. Ficker never saw Mike Abramson and never knew where he could be reached. Ficker believed that he worked with Kennedy aides in coordinating the Kennedy write-in campaign in New Hampshire. The write-in campaign for Senator Kennedy was totally financed by the committee to re-elect the president, yet that information was disclosed neither to Mr. Ficker or to the public during the campaign. Patrick Buchanan testified that, although not acquainted with the Ficker letter, he knew about Ficker's write-in campaign. Asked about the propriety of the letter, Buchanan responded that it was a borderline case with regard to unethical campaign practices. Buchanan had advocated a form of vote siphoning in an October 5, 1971 memorandum to Mitchell and Haldeman. 3. Fourth-Party Candidacies Top-level consideration should be given to ways and means to promote, assist, and fund a fourth-party candidacy to the left Democrats and or the black Democrats. There is nothing that can so advance the president's chances for re-election, not a trip to China, not 4.5% employment, as a realistic black presidential campaign. The absence of a requirement that the true sponsors of such efforts to aid opposition party candidates be disclosed may mislead the public into thinking that there is more support for such candidates than in fact there is. The Illinois Primary The committee to re-elect the president apparently also directed some money to the Illinois primary campaign of Senator Eugene McCarthy, hoping that McCarthy would take votes away from the other candidate on the ballot, Senator Muskie. Once again, financial support of an opponent of Senator Muskie was not disclosed to the public. American Independent Party Effort in California The American Independent Party, AIP, was founded by supporters of George Wallace's presidential aspirations. The attempted vote siphoning aimed at AIP was limited in scope and unsuccessful, but it nonetheless provides an insight into the tactics supported by CRP to assure President Nixon's re-election. 
Under California law, a political party, as of January 1st of an election year, must have registered voters exceeding one-fifteenth of one percent of the total voter registration in the state to qualify for the ballot in a primary election. The plan was to convince enough of the approximately 140,000 registered AIP voters to re-register in another party before January 1, 1972, to drop AIP registration below the one-fifteenth of one percent figure. The re-registration plan was conceived in early 1971 by Robert J. Walters, a California businessman and sometime Wallace supporter who had become disenfranchised with the AIP after the 1968 presidential election. Walters was upset because the AIP was drawing votes away from conservative candidates of the two major parties. It was Walters' understanding that voters who had changed addresses since the 1970 election without notifying county authorities, could be purged from the list of registered voters if proof of the address changes were presented to the officials. Walters planned to send a mass mailing to registered AIP voters, receive from the post office those letters undeliverable because of address changes, and then forward them to county election officials for purging. Walters also planned to enlist a large group of people who would personally contact AIP voters and urge them to re-register. Walters mailed re-registration literature under the heading of the Committee Against Forced Busing, urging AIP members to fight against busing by joining one of the major parties. In the summer of 1971, Walters began writing letters to numerous conservative groups asking for support. Walters also wrote a letter to CRP in Washington. In late September 1971, an unidentified man called Walters from New York City, said he worked for a group doing public relations work for President Nixon's re-election effort, and told Walters that he would be contacted by someone else regarding the re-registration drive. About mid-September, according to Walters, a man called him from a Los Angeles hotel and identified himself as Mr. Magruder from out of town. He said that he and Jeb Magruder met and discussed Walters' re-registration plan. Magruder remembered meeting with Walters and discussing the plan. While Walters waited for a follow-up call to the meeting with Magruder, an initial mailing went out, largely funded by Willis Carto of the Liberty Lobby. About October 1st, Walters hired a friend, Glenn Parker, to assist in the drive. In the meantime, Magruder received John Mitchell's approval for spending $10,000 and discussed the plan with Lynn Nofseeger, a Californian with many years of political experience who was then at the RNC. Nofseeger called Jack Lindsay, a Los Angeles businessman whom he knew. Nofseeger mentioned Walters' plan to Lindsay, and Lindsay agreed to monitor the project and pay the expenses. Nofziger then arranged to send Lindsay $10,000 in cash that he obtained from Hugh Sloan. Lindsay called Walters to arrange a meeting to discuss funding without indicating the source of the money. Walters briefed Lindsay on the results of the mass mailing and door-to-door -door visits during several occasions in the late fall of 1971. Lindsay forwarded Walters' written reports on the drive to Nofziger, who said he mailed them to Magruder without reading them. Lindsay paid Walters' expenses plus $150 per week salary. After the re-registration drive folded in late 1971, Lindsay still held $1,000 of the $10,000, which he said he donated in his name to a Los Angeles fundraising dinner for President Nixon. The re-registration effort itself never got off the ground despite the $10,000 CRP contribution. Many county officials refused to purge voters who had moved. In addition, the personal canvassing effort faltered from the beginning and ended up involving members of the American Nazi Party. 
Walters was never able to recruit volunteers or paid canvassers in numbers sufficient to ensure more than a minimal canvassing effort. His assistant, Glenn Parker, knew that Joseph Tomasi, then head of the regional Nazi party, needed money for mortgage payments on the party headquarters. Parker hired Tomasi and some of his associates who contacted AIP members on the re-registration drive without identifying themselves as Nazi party members. Documents show that Tomasi received some $1,200 of money originally from CRP for his efforts. The re-registration drive was a complete failure, according to all participants. J. Unsigned Literature In addition to the incidents cited above of unsigned literature printed and distributed by CRP agents prior to the break-in at the DNC, there was a suggestion made by the White House after the break-in that unidentified literature should be prepared and distributed by the CRP. Richard Howard, Charles Colson's administrative assistant, wrote in a memo to Ed Failer on June 28, 1972. An idea that has come from very high sources is that a booklet or small brochure be prepared, with no identification as to who prepared it, on the McGovern platform. All the issues should be listed, such as labor, national defense, amnesty, pot, poverty, abortion, etc., under each issue should be the worst possible quote, statement, or reported position by McGovern regarding the issue. Some of his bland or non-controversial issues should also be included. After the booklet is completed, a large distribution should be made to opinion leaders. There is presently no evidence before the committee to indicate whether this suggestion was implemented. 3. Impact on Democratic Campaigns it is difficult, if not impossible, to assess accurately the impact of the activities described above on the 1972 presidential campaign. Donald Segretti testified that one of the tactical objectives outlined for him by Dwight Chapin was to foster a split between the Democratic hopefuls. In addition, much of the other disruptive activity described above appears to have been intended to divide the Democrats, in the words of Pat Buchanan. Both Burl Bernhard, Senator Muskie's campaign manager, and Frank Mankiewicz, Senator McGovern's campaign director, testified that the activities described above were successful in dividing the Democratic candidates among themselves. Bernhard testified that the dirty tricks emanating from the White House and CRP generated suspicion and animosity between the staffs of the Democratic contenders. Mankiewicz testified that the objective of the dirty tricks was to create within the Democratic Party such a strong sense of resentment among the candidates and their followers as to make unity of the party impossible once a nominee was selected. At that, the efforts seemed to have been most successful. Though no witness could testify that the outcome of the general election would have been any different if the dirty tricks discussed above had not occurred, these activities helped to leave the Democratic Party bitterly divided at the close of the presidential primaries. Frank Mankiewicz noted that what was created by the sabotage effort was an unparalleled atmosphere of rancor and discord within the Democratic Party. Senator Muskie was widely acknowledged throughout 1971 as the Democratic frontrunner and most formidable political opponent for President Nixon. As Patrick Buchanan wrote Attorney General Mitchell on July 28, 1971, The clear and present danger is that Senator Muskie, the favorite in the early primaries, will promenade through the primaries, come into the convention with a clear majority and enormous momentum for November. That would be bad news for us. As a result of this concern, almost all of the activities described above, Segretti and Agents, Ruby 1, Ruby 2, Sedan Chair, Sedan Chair 2, and others, initially focused their attention on Senator Muskie. 
After the early primaries, Senator Muskie's campaign declined, and he withdrew from active campaigning following the Pennsylvania primary. On April 12, 1972, Buchanan and Kachigian wrote to Haldeman and Mitchell, Our primary objective, to prevent Senator Muskie from sweeping the early primaries, locking up the convention in April, and uniting the Democratic Party behind him for the fall, has been achieved. Earl Bernhard testified that Senator Muskie's decline was attributable to a lack of adequate financing, a proliferation of Democratic primaries, the polarization of the Democratic Party, and the problems of a centrist candidate. However, Bernhard also testified that the dirty tricks took a toll in the form of diverting our resources, changing our schedule, altering our political approaches, and being thrown on the defensive. Finally, both Mankiewicz and Bernard testified that the activities described above were not politics as usual for either Democrats or Republicans. Apart from the activities noted above that were directly linked to President Nixon's re-election campaign, the campaigns of Democratic contenders encountered many other instances of disruptive or deceptive behavior. For example, the well-known Canuck letter was published by the Manchester Union leader on February 24, 1972, less than two weeks before the New Hampshire primary. The letter, allegedly from a Paul Morrison of Deerfield Beach, Florida, claimed that Senator Muskie had laughed at an aide's use of the racist slur Knuck. Senator Muskie issued an absolute denial of the charges on a flatbed truck outside the offices of the union leader and denounced its editor, William Loeb. The committee was unable to discover the individuals responsible for this dirty trick. Senator Muskie also responded emotionally to an article about his wife reprinted in the union leader, which was subsequently reported by the media as the Muskie crying incident. The other instances or allegations of improper activities directed at Democratic candidates that were not linked to any other presidential campaign are contained in the committee files that are not detailed in this report. End of section 19.